Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. We're happy to have our brother Larry Price with us. He's no stranger to us and needs no introduction. I could give one, but I believe we all know our brother Larry, so we'll turn the rest of our Bible Instruction Time over to him at this time. Brother Larry, please. Well, good morning. Uh, yeah, we had a lot of fun. Jay not only used to come over for meals, but wherever we went, Jay went. So uh, I remember our son was in basketball, <laughs> a little 10 or 11 years old or whatever, local basketball league. And uh, Jay was a great uh, cheerleader and uh, provocateur to the other team. OK, so <laughs> anyway, those those days. Yeah. Well, uh, again, as you may have noticed or not, if you look at my vehicle out there, you'll see a Pennsylvania tag on it. Uh, that was one of the harder things to do. Um, that and to have a Pennsylvania driver's license, meaning I'm now a resident of Pennsylvania. I s tell folks we've reversed the order of the universe, and, and we're at least starting that trend. There doesn't seem to be a great following yet to it of moving from the south to the north, but there you go. But anyway, um, we're very grateful that a few years ago, before things kind of went nutso, um, our one son-in-law and daughter, Rebecca, bought a very large house, and they got it for a very good price, three-story house, and in the basement, there, is a, there was a, a bedroom, bathroom, and a little sitting room, so we have become basement dwellers, and um, we recently sold our house in Florida and putting some of that money towards uh, an addition on the back, which will provide more space for us, or if company comes, and also a guest room for them, since we are now occupying what was their guest room. But um, it's very good. I've had been blessed for many years to spend uh, a lot of time, Wanda and I, with my son and his family. But it hasn't been the same for, for Wanda and the girls, or for me and the girls. So it's real good time for us to be near both daughters up there, and the relationship of daughter daughters to mother is very special. And so we're very thankful for that. It has taken a little bit of getting used to, but uh, we're sort of fitting in. And um, I was just thinking, Billy, you know, uh, I used to travel quite a bit to different camps throughout the summer. Um, I will be at three different camps this summer. But one of the things I liked, used to like to do when I traveled to camps was to find new songs because at camps in particular, you can get stuck, you know, kind of singing the same old stuff. I don't know whether you remember this, but that song, Lamb of God, I brought that to Camp Horizon and I brought it the year uh, it was 1999 because it was the year my son got saved. And he got saved just after that week that he came to camp. And that song was the theme song for the week. As a matter of fact, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, and I have been known to be mistaken, I think that week Buck had loaned me uh, a chart. It wasn't a full-size wall chart, but it was a chart on uh, the children of Israel and the Exodus coming out of Egypt, which was my, my messages for that week. And so that song, Lamb of God, fit in very nicely with the theme of the redemption out of the land of Egypt. So lots of good memories there. Speaking of memory, um, I guess the Lord wanted us to hear Luke chapter 8, because Billy asked me what to read. Whenever I'm asked, I usually like to read the passage that I'm going to be speaking from. And uh, 
With that in mind, we turn to Matthew chapter 8. <laughs> it's not Billy's fault. I said Luke 8. It just jumped out. And I meant Matthew 8, but there you go. So we got a little of Luke and uh, something totally different in Matthew chapter 8. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, blame it on the young guy, right? So let's turn to Matthew chapter 8. And before I read Matthew chapter 8, I'll back up to chapter 7 and verse 28, which says, It came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will, be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus saith unto him, See thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. I'll pause right there. And I would ask, uh, I know you folks will probably already be doing it, but I would appreciate prayer this week for uh, the CIT program, those that are attending, those that are involved. And for me, as I speak, it's a pretty, it's not only an intense uh, schedule for the ones that are there listening, it's an intense uh, schedule for me speaking, six messages a day. And uh, our study again will be the book of Romans. We're kind of going a little, well, in retro in a sense, the first CIT that we ever did, uh, Randy Amos came and taught the book of Romans. And so we were discussing and thought it'd be good to go back and start where we started in the beginning with the book of Romans. So um, it's uh, also, we did what we did in the early days of CIT. Uh, I developed a test to give all of the attendees at the beginning they'll get the same test at the end of the week, which uh, will show them the progress that they've made. So um, a lot has gone into it. Very grateful to be involved and to have the opportunity to be involved. So prayer, very much appreciated for that. I want to speak just for a moment about the structure of Matthew's gospel and how Matthew has arranged his material. As we know, all of the writers had their unique personality and they all uh, approach the subject matter a bit differently. In many ways, in my mind, Matthew is one of the most uh, tightly structured of the synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and his arrangement is decidedly different. Sometimes the differences that appear in different presentation of the Lord's life and work and ministry are viewed by critics as being contradictory, but they really aren't, they're more complementary. And I've often used the illustration that if you sent four people to write a story about someone's house that had caught on fire, one person might write about the intensity of the fire and how many degrees the flames were and how it quickly destroyed the house and so on. And another person might write about the family that lived there and how they narrowly escaped death but lost everything they had. And another might write about the response time of the emergency personnel that came to deal with the fire and so on. You're not getting uh, uh, four stories about something different. It's four viewpoints, all of the same story, that complement one another. 
And so that's the way the gospel writers do, even though that's not a very strong illustration. It gives us a little bit of an idea. So one way to look at Matthew's gospel, it certainly is not the only way, but one that seems to suggest itself as you get into it a bit, is to realize that what Matthew does is to divide his material basically into two sort of um, types of material, if you will. On the one hand, he will give us narrative material, and by narrative, he will present to us a collection of stories, uh, of accounts of what the Lord did. There's a lot of action. The Lord went here. He did this. The disciples followed him. This occurred, and so on. A narrative section, a collection of stories, accounts of what the Lord did, lots of movement in it. With Along with that, there'll be some teaching in that, of course, as the Lord moves along. But then Matthew will give us uh, large sections of his gospel that are more formal teaching times. And in those formal teaching times, you won't find any movement at all, very little movement. It is just sort of straightforward teaching. No miracles, no healing, uh, no confrontation with anybody at that point, just straightforward teaching. And if we think back to the beginning of Matthew's gospel, that is sort of how we notice in the beginning how it occurs. You get roughly the first four chapters that are narrative. They tell us uh, about the birth of the Son of God and how he came into the world and all of those type of things that were going on around that particular time. And then almost very early in his gospel, he launches into a very formal time of teaching, which most people would refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. So you have chapters 1 through 4 that are narrative and accounts and stories, and then you have chapters 5 through 7 that are formal teaching. The Lord just went here and he sat there and he taught, and you get chapters 5 and 6 and 7 and so on. We remember that the writers of the scripture, when they wrote the original text, they did not have verse and chapter divisions like we are fortunate to have today, but they had literary devices and means by which they could mark off their material and let you know that the thought flow of that section was done and something else was about to begin. And they'll put those markers throughout uh, their various gospel accounts. And so we're helped in this as well, because when you get to chapter 7, after the Lord has done this teaching, you read in verse 28, it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings. So the sayings of Jesus ended at that point. And then he came down from the mountain, and the multitudes followed him, introducing this narrative section now in the various accounts that occur after that. And then you get chapters 8 and 9, which is narrative. And then you come down to um, chapter 10, and you find uh, there it says in verse 1, when he called unto him his 12 disciples, he gave them power, and so on and so on. And chapter 10 is another teaching section in Matthew's gospel. When that teaching ends, you come to the end of chapter 10, and you come to verse... 1 of chapter 11, it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples, he departed thence to teach and preach in their cities. And you get chapters 11 and 12, which again are narrative sections. The Lord went here, they did this, and so on and so on. And, and then, of course, when you come to chapter 13, 
the formal teaching of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And so I'm not going to go into all of Matthew's gospel, but you'll notice that that is the pattern, and that ought to be sufficient enough to establish the fact that that is a pattern in Matthew's gospel, whatever else you make of it. It's just observing what's there, not imposing something upon the text. And so as you think of that, you might say, well, what difference does it make? What does it matter? I mean, you know, if you, Jay, was a builder, and uh, when you build a house, you could point out to people if it were frame carpentry, these are the studs, and these are the jacks, and these are the rafters, and so on and so on. But so what? Eventually, they're going to get drywall or something on them, and it's all going to be closed in, and then it'll serve the function that it is. It could be helpful to point out all the two-by-fours, but not necessarily so much. Or if you think of boat building, you know, you've got the ribbings in the boat, and you see how a boat is built and so on, or at least that's how they used to be built back in the days in Man of War and places like that. Uh, but um, the, the ribbing... Uh, you don't sail on the ribbing, do you? You've got to wait for the boat to be completed and so on. So it's not just to observe the structure of the book that is important to help us to begin to see how the writer has arranged his material, but what's the point of arranging it like that? Well, let's think about the section that we're looking at today that begins in chapter 8 and technically ends in chapter 7. When the Lord finished teaching what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, the observation that is made there in verse 28, when he ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them uh, as one having authority and not as the scribes, which sets up a conflict right there, doesn't it? Or a tension, because the scribes were authorities among the Jewish people. But now there was another authority, and it was not like the authority of the scribes. It was different, wasn't it? The Lord taught them as one that had authority, and not as the scribes taught. And then you begin to follow throughout chapter 8, and you'll notice when you come down to verse 9, and you have the centurion and the servant, the centurion makes this remarkable Remark, I am a man under authority. And I say to this one, go, and that one, go, and they do that, and so on and so on. You come to chapter 8, and you, uh, well, you, you move on down through the chapter, and you will find this subject of authority that is mentioned in different um, contexts. Chapter 9, for instance, that you may know that the Son of Man hath Power or authority on earth to forgive sins. Verse 8, when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such authority or power unto men. And so we see that in chapter 8 and 9, springing forth out of what has ended this prior section of teaching, we see that subject of authority. But then there's something else that's woven through the text. Another parallel idea that is connected with this idea of authority, and it's given to us by the words that we find in verse 1, that great multitudes followed him. Verse 
10, the Lord marveled and said to them that followed. Verse 19, Master, I will follow. Jesus said unto him in verse 22, follow me. Verse 23, when he'd entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And perhaps one of the most marvelous of all, very striking, is where Matthew gives his own testimony. And his testimony is given not in length, but in a very conspicuous place. We won't have the time to develop it this morning or look into it, but it happens in verse 9, where Matthew inserts this and says, As Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he said unto him, Follow me. And he followed him. What are the implications of authority? And what is the connection between authority and following? If you are saved, you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the ways that sometimes you might refer to yourself or others might refer to you is as a follower of the Lord Jesus. You're a follower of the Lord Jesus. What does that mean? Well, there's certainly a geographic sense in it. We've thought a little bit about that this morning, the captain of our salvation. We are following him to a literal geographic place, aren't we? All the way to glory. But it's not just a geographical thing. When the disciples followed him, they went from point A to point B, but it was more than that, wasn't it? It meant to subject themselves to the teaching of the Lord. If I am a follower of the Lord Jesus, it means I am one who follows his teaching and submit myself to his authoritative word, which is interesting when we begin to think about it. Well, if you're going to follow somebody, you need to know the nature and the quality. What is their authority like? You should know at least. The first time I ever went out of North America, I went to South America. And I went to the country of Guyana. And there were two common questions I got. What part of Africa is that in? And and then secondly, is that where Jim Jones was? And the second one was true. I stayed in the home of a former deputy director of the police department there. And in many of those countries... Uh, the police departments are more paramilitary. They're not just police departments. They're paramilitary. And he took me one day on a tour down to the station where he had worked, police station. And I saw the photographs on the wall of the compound of Jim Jones. Now, I don't know if that's where that phrase originated, but it certainly is applicable. We talk about people who've drunk the Kool-Aid. And maybe that's where it started because that's what they did, you know. Are you loyal to me? You drink the Kool-Aid. And they did, time and time and time again, till one day, 900 of them. It wasn't just Kool-Aid. And some of, it did, some of them did it willingly. All of them did it under compulsion. They followed that man all the way from the United States to the jungles of Guyana. And then with his authority, 900 of them, call it mass suicide, call it what you will, You're going to follow somebody, you need to know the nature and something about their authority, don't you? And so we're introduced, marvelously so, to the Lord's 
authority. And when you couple that with who's writing this, Matthew, what was it that Matthew saw or heard that when the Lord Jesus simply said to him, follow me, that he got up from his place of work, left it all, and followed the Lord Jesus. That's Matthew's testimony. Remarkable, isn't it? Well, we begin to be introduced to the character and the quality of the Lord's authority. And I want you to notice how Matthew does it. Now, the reason why I keep saying how Matthew does it is I recognize it's the Spirit of God who leads them to write, but he did it within the framework of their own personalities and their own personal bents and so on, so that he didn't, it wasn't just automaton dictation. And so now Matthew says, I'm going to paraphrase this and just put it in this way. Matthew's going to say, I want to show you something about the authority of the Lord and why I followed him. And so we come down from the mountain in verse 2, and the first one we meet is a leper. Now a leper was unclean. But what was Matthew? He was a tax collector. I guarantee you he was hated as much if not more by the Jewish people than any leper was. They considered him no better than any unclean leper extorting money from the people and those who could least afford it, the widows and others, and extorting it for the Roman government. He got a certain amount, but his real money came from whatever he got on top of what he collected for the taxes. A traitor. And he introduces us to a man that the Lord meets in the multitudes as they're coming down, a leper and he comes and worships and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. That's interesting. Do you know that this is the first time in the Gospels that anybody addresses Jesus Christ personally as Lord? And it wasn't the Pharisees who did it. And it wasn't the scribes. It was a leper the first one to speak those words personally to Jesus Christ, Lord. Well, that certainly indicates authority, doesn't it? The Lord, and it's a leper who says it. Lord, if you will, would it be God's desire to heal that man of his leprosy, to cleanse him? And it certainly was, wasn't it? If you will, you can make me clean. And then a remarkable thing happened. Jesus put forth his hand, and he touched him, and he said, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. You're going to read later in this chapter 
of times when the Lord, well, the very next account will tell us, doesn't it? That when the centurion came, who was a man who was in charge of a hundred troops under him, um, he would make the, the, the statement, wouldn't he? Lord, you don't even need to come under my, my house. I'm not even worthy that you should come under my roof. All you got to do is speak the word and my servant will be healed. You don't need to come there. You don't need to touch him even, the centurion said. And by the way, the centurion was a Gentile. He too would be considered by the Jew unclean. If you looked up in a Jewish dictionary, unclean, definition, Gentile. <laughs> Not literally, but I mean, that's how they considered them. They were the unclean. They ate unclean stuff. They had unclean practices. They didn't keep kosher. <laughs> but anyway, the Lord didn't just speak to the leper and allow the leprosy to depart. He touched him. Now, the law prescribed that if you were a leper, imagine what it was. You had to go around, and when you saw anybody coming or anybody got near you, you covered your face and you said, Unclean! I'm unclean! I'm unclean! Imagine spending your life doing that. Imagine what it must have felt for that man to have to profess his uncleanness. There's a sense in which all of us are unclean. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But it's another thing when you've got to stand around and proclaim it to other people, your uncleanness, and be made aware of it and be ostracized by society how long had it been since this man had felt a human touch? I tell you, we don't know, do we? But the power of human touch, to me it was one of the tragedies during COVID, wasn't it? People dying in nursing homes and hospitals and their loved ones and close ones couldn't be with them. Couldn't be there to hold their hand and comfort them. We had to social distance. And the Lord touched this man. What's the character of the Lord like? Not only did he have compassion, not only would he heal this man of his leprosy, but he touched that leper. And you know, because the Lord is the Son of God and Lord of glory, that leprosy couldn't get into him. When he touched that man, that leprosy went the other way and went out of him, out of that man. But the Lord wouldn't contract that because light is not overcome by darkness in that sense. And him being the perfect holy son of God, that leprosy couldn't attach to him like it might to you or I. It's remarkable, isn't it? That's what God that's what his authority is like. The authority to have compassion on one who's in need. The authority, the authority to even to touch that one, to express that compassion. The authority that has the power to do something about the condition of that man and to make him clean. And then Jesus says to him in verse 4, see that you don't tell anybody about it. You know what happened when the Lord said that to people? <laughs> they went and told everybody, didn't they? How could they not? I mean, I've been a leper all my life. You wouldn't even hardly have to say anything, would you? 
What happened to you? Well, let me tell you what happened to me. Okay. Now the Lord is saying this for a reason at this point. He hasn't come to the cross yet. He doesn't want to maximize publicity, and that's not what he's about, you see. He, of course, they're going to tell. They did. But anyway, he did say this. Go and show yourself to the priest. And you go off of the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. I remember, I think it's the only message I heard by way of tape, I'm not quite that old, but um, it was a message by Harry Ironside that I heard on tape. Somebody recorded a very scratchy recording, man of a prior generation, and it was on the cleansing of the leper. And he made the remark that when the Lord Jesus appeared on the scene, that the priest would have had to dust off Leviticus chapter 14 because they'd never used it. Leviticus 14 told what to do when a leper was cleansed, but it never happened. We don't have it recorded in history, not of an Israelite. You've got Naaman the Syrian, and you've got Miriam's little temporary thing there in the book of Exodus, but not of an Israelite being, and, and the Lord came, and the lepers were being cleansed and healed. And he sends that leper to the priest. And if you read back in Leviticus, the law was very meticulous about diagnosing leprosy. You look at it, if you see it here, and it's a little spot, and it's red, and it's got a little white, and maybe a little hair coming out of it, and da 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 da, da and on and on it went. You see, the law could diagnose the problem, but the law couldn't do anything about the problem. The law was, if there was ever an authority, it was Moses, wasn't it? The law but as much of an authority as Moses and the law, it could diagnose the leprosy, do nothing to cleanse it. But the Lord says, go and offer the gift. Because as we'll find in the book of Romans this week, Paul will make a statement, I believe it's in chapter 3, something to this effect. Do we then make void the law of God? Oh, no, by no means. We establish the law of God through the gospel. We uphold the character of God and his morality in the gospel. And so the Lord would uphold the standard that the law said, if a leper's cleansed, let him go, let him go through the prescribed procedure, and so on and so on. But he did it for another reason, didn't he? And he tells the leper that. Go and do it for a testimony unto them. Don't you go out broadcasting it to everybody, but go to the priest. Offer the thing that you're supposed to do. Go through the procedure for a testimony to them. Because I want those priests to know how it is that you were cleansed. It's interesting when you come to the book of Acts, there's a verse there and I couldn't begin to quote it or even tell you where it is, but I, I do know it's there. And it says something to this effect. Many of the priests believed also. Interesting, isn't it? What was it that caused the priest to believe? Well, certainly in part, we find the character of the Lord was that he wanted those priests to know that there was a power and authority greater than Moses. Moses could diagnose, but what the law could not do, 
because of the weakness of the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of God might be perfected in us, you see, through what Jesus Christ did. So it was a remarkable thing. And I know uh, time is brief. I won't look fully into this next section except to say it is interesting that I was one of those things. Again, Billy, with the, you know, like uh, the other day I was looking at this passage and reading about the centurion well-known story. Um, As he entered into Capernaum, there came the centurion beseeching him, verse 5. And then I noticed, and I'm like, as I often do, you dummy, it's right there. You never saw it. The second time. Jesus is addressed as Lord. It's by the centurion. First time by a leper, unclean. Second time by a Gentile, also considered by the Jews unclean. And they addressed him as Lord. And this one goes even further, doesn't it? Because when he came and said something about his servant, who was sick of this paralysis of whatever it was, and having such a difficult time physically, Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should even come under my roof. Wait a minute. The Jew would have said, the Gentile's not worthy to even come into our house. Certainly not worthy to sit at table with us. And the Gentile now says to the Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. Remarkable thing. Just speak the word. I'm a man under authority. I say jump. People say how high. How far? When the Lord heard that, he marveled and said to them that followed, I'll tell you, I haven't found so great faith in all of Israel. What a statement for those that were listening. I haven't found faith like this in all of Israel. And I tell you, many shall come from the east and west. They'll sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into utter darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, those who are going to claim that they have some connection or some right to the kingdom just because of their physical descendancy as being a Jew, not going to cut it. People who come from all over, east and west and all these other places, meaning, you know, from the Gentile coast and so on. And they'll sit down. But many people who thought they had an in just because of their physical descendancy or because they were children under the covenant, not going to cut it. They have to have faith like this centurion. They have to recognize me for who I am. They have to own my authority. And the Lord said unto the centurion, Go thy way as you have believed, so be it done unto you. And his servant was healed in the self-same hour. In one case, touches the man and heals him. Another, doesn't even go to the house, just speaks the word, and the man is healed. The recognition of faith Another evidence of who the Lord is, that he could look into the heart of that centurion and say, you have believed. You're not just saying stuff with your mouth to get me to do something. 
You believed. And he could look into his heart, of course, because he is the Lord. And they'll follow other instances of those who had to make a decision whether to follow the Lord or not. I cannot come. I have bought me, yes, a cow. <laughs> and married me a wife. Yes, we, we learn how to say it correctly so we don't get in trouble, don't we? Yes. But anyway, they made all kinds of excuses why they could not follow the Lord. Many did. But many like Matthew did follow him. And I trust that you here who are believers in the Lord Jesus have learned something about the authority of the Lord and what it's like. And your desire of your heart is to follow him and to do his will. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for such an authority as this. Here was one who could do what the law of Moses could not do. He was one who could heal and make clean. And we're thankful that you're still in that business today. That part of what it means to be saved is to be cleansed. And what a wonderful feeling it is when you, when you know the sense of your own guilt and your own sin and your own shortcomings, to know that with you there is complete and full cleansing. It is accomplished through the death that you died on Calvary's cross. And you, the one who knew no sin, becoming a sin offering for us. And dying there that we might be made the righteousness of God in you. What an exchange. We give you thanks. We pray for the upcoming week at camp. And we ask for Jay's grandchild, Lord, have mercy and, and heal and comfort the parents, we pray. We give you thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.